1996, a New York City public school teacher who was getting ready to retire wrote his first book. It was a memoir about his tragic childhood in Limerick, Ireland, a childhood just bursting at the seams with misery and alcoholism and poverty. In economic circumstances, it was, it was de- desperate. It was, it was Calcutta with rain. The author, of course, was Frank McCourt, and the book was Angela's Ashes. Getting published at 66 years old was a lifelong dream for McCourt, but he didn't just get published. He won a Pulitzer Prize and became a literary celebrity. It was a stunning turn of events for a humble immigrant. Back in the slums of Ireland, he'd barely had an education, but for some reason, he was always desperate to write. If they told me to write uh, an essay of 150 words, I'd write 500 words till the master said, Stop! McCord, stop! That's enough! Stop! And then they might read it to the class. Uh, and then, of course, I'd be teased again in the school. Yeah, for Jesus' sake, McCord, will you stop writing? We have to listen to it. Well, today we're going to wallow in the sheer joy of listening to Frank McCourt's stories. He tells them as well as he writes them. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the audio vault of the Academy of Achievement. Our hashtag is What It Takes Now. So take a moment and let your friends know you're listening. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. When Frank McCourt first came to speak at an Academy of Achievement event, he was still adjusting to his new life in the limelight. It was 1999, three years after he'd written Angela's Ashes, and the same year the movie version was released. These are the first words Frank McCourt said as he took to the podium. I'm not here because I was a teacher. I'm here because I wrote a book. 27 years as a teacher, nobody paid me a scrap of attention. Then you write a book about misery, and everybody pays attention, and they ask you for your opinion on things. I've been asked for for my opinion on everything. I've been asked to write for various magazines just because I wrote this book. I've been asked to write for Gourmet magazine. And I grew up on bread and tea. And even bread wasn't a sure thing. When Frank McCourt sat for an interview following that talk, he dove into his wretched life in Limerick. But Frank McCourt, who died in 2009, was such an engaging raconteur, he could almost make you delight in his memories of hunger, typhoid, abusive teachers, terrifying priests, and an alcoholic father. My father, by day, when he wasn't drinking, was the perfect father. When he'd get money, then he was a maniac. It was two different men. And I think that pertains a lot to, to the, I know this is a racial generalization, but it was like that when, when, they, when they drank. There was so, the country was so uh, 
inhibited emotionally. I think because of the church and because of, of tr the traumas that arose out of history, like the potato famine, the people had gone into themselves. And it wasn't like that in the old days, way back in medieval Ireland, when they sang and danced in a wild, orgiastic way. Uh, in my generation and generations before me, the people had gone in. So my father would uh, sit by the fire, read the paper, and he was very laconic. But at the same time, he would tell us stories and teach us songs. Uh, my mother and my mother was was depressed because she lost three children. But we learned song from them and we learned storytelling, and she was a good storyteller too because she got to the movies, and we couldn't go; we didn't have the money. She'd come home and tell us the whole movie, frame by frame. She went to see a movie one, once called *Reap the Wild Wind* with Paulette Goddard and John Wayne, who was a bad guy in that, and Ray Milan, and she told us. Every line of that. And we sat around the fire. I remember that fire looking into the, the, the flames darting and leaping. And she, she's telling the story. We're having tea. So this is what we got from them. No television. We had no electricity, so we couldn't have anything. But there was always this stuff going on between us at home and in the streets and with the neighbors. That was rich. But then my father would ruin the whole thing with his drinking. And there was kind of a dramatic element to this. The men got out of work out of the factories and the timber yards and the cement factories at 5.30. They would come home on Friday night, most of them, wash themselves to here, from here to here, never below. You know, people didn't touch themselves with water from one end of the year to the other. They come home, wash their hands, wash, throw water on their faces, have their Friday night tea, which was an egg because it was Friday. And, uh, and then the, the uh, women would give the price of a few pints and they'd go out and they'd have a few pints, talk, sing a few songs, come home, have tea, go to bed, and go to work the next morning. 5.30 they were out. Six, by 6 o'clock, most of them were home for that wash and that tea. But my mother would wait on tenterhooks. If he wasn't home by 6 o'clock, boom, boom, bong, bong, all around the city. If he wasn't home by the time the angels rang, he wasn't coming home. And then she'd sink deeper and deeper into the chair by the fire because we knew then the wages were gone and he'd arrive home after the pubs were closed, roaring and singing down the lane, Roddy McCauley, Ghost to Die, and all the patriotic songs. He, he, he grieved over Ireland and didn't care if we starved to death that night and the next day. So that, that, was the, uh, that was the kind of atmosphere I grew up in. Poverty, alcoholism, Fear of the church, fear of the schoolmasters, fear in general. But at the same time, when we get out of school, when we were away from the church, when we were out of the house, we were on the streets and we were always excited. And when you have nothing, little things become very precious, like books. There was an occasional book came into our house and we, we, just, we just devoured it. In that sense, it was very rich. Limerick didn't have a library that children could use, but his mother would sometimes send him to fetch a book for her. When Huckleberry Finn came in, I, I, jeez, I, that, uh, Tom Sawyer, I wanted, I wanted to be Tom Sawyer. I wanted to go down to the River Shannon, stand on the banks of the river, and did, and dreamed it might be the Mississippi, and I'd get a raft, and off I'd go, 60 miles out to sea, and I wanted to be free like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. But these were, these were the books that made a big, big, big impression. The main literature in our lives was the literature of the church. 
the, the Sunday Missal and the Lives of the Saints. So these were all, and since, since books were so scarce, I can sort them out in my memory, even the look of them and the smell of them. Everything was precious. I remember a loaf of bread that was precious because it was so little. My mother would bring home what they called the Vienna loaf. I remember one particular loaf of bread and we were so hungry, I could still taste it. So our, uh, poverty does make things precious. It turns everything into jewelry. Frank McCourt went to a government elementary school called Leamy's National, but only until he was 13. High school wasn't an option for kids who couldn't afford shoes. McCourt says the teachers he remembers were horrible, but he was a good student. I was, I suppose, because there was no choice that beat the hell out of you if you, if you didn't do your work. So we were, in that sense, some of us were, were quicker than others. Some, some kids were very slow, and they suffered from it because the masters would get irritable. They wanted you to know, and if you didn't know, if you didn't comprehend, they'd take, haul you out of your seat and knock you around the room, which is not uh, uh, advanced pedagogy. But as is often the case with people who rise above circumstance, there was this one teacher. The last teacher I had was a man named O'Halloran, but he was the only one who offered words of encouragement, who told us we were distinct, unique individuals with a right to think for ourselves. And that was in the, just before we left Leamy's National School. And he told me, my boy, you are a literary genius. And you can imagine what I had to put up at the schoolyard. And McCourt, you're a literary genius. Look at him, look at the literary genius. But it wasn't negative. It was just teasing. But they, they respected him and they respected me for being, for being picked out by, by Mr. O'Halloran. There's a scene with Mr. O'Halloran in the Hollywood movie version of Angela's Ashes. Take a listen to this excerpt. Stock your mind. It's your house of treasure and no one in the world can interfere with it. Fill your mind with rubbish, and it'll rot to your head. You might be poor, your shoes might be broken, but your mind, your mind is a palace. That scene follows one where little Frank McCourt has gotten in trouble with a different teacher for writing an essay called Jesus and the Weather. It appears in the movie word for word as it appears in the memoir. And I'm going to play it for you, not just because it's so funny, but because it's in the book and the movie to show you just how far back Frank McCourt was attracted to a certain type of storytelling. The title of my composition is Jesus and the Weather. What? Jesus and the Weather, sir. All right. Read it. I don't think Jesus, who is our Lord, would have liked the weather in Limerick because it's always raining and the Shannon keeps the whole city damp. My father says the Shannon is a killer river because it killed my two brothers. When you look at pictures of Jesus, he's always wandering around ancient Israel in a sheet. It never rains there and you never hear of anyone coughing or getting the consumption or anything like that. And no one has a job there because all they do is stand around eat manna, shake their fists, and go to crucifixions. Anytime Jesus got hungry, all he had to do was to walk up the road to a fig tree or an orange tree and have his fill. Or if he wanted a pint, he could wave his hand over a big glass and there was the pint. Or he could visit Mary Magdalene and her sister Martha 
and they gave me his dinner, no questions asked. So it's a good thing Jesus decided to be born Jewish in that nice warm place, because if he was born in Limerick, he'd catch a consumption and be dead in a month, and there wouldn't be any Catholic church, and we wouldn't have to write compositions about him. The end. Did you write this composition, McCord? I did so. I think I was always attracted to writing, always wanted to write, because for me it was magic. To get a piece of paper and put words in it, to put together words that were never before put together by anybody, to take two words that would never join together like, uh, like uh, uh, a scintillating turnip. I would put words together like that just to keep the language fresh. And I was, when I was nine or ten, I was trying to write a detective novel an English detective novel, set in London, which I'd never seen. All I knew about London was what I read, an English detective novel. So I was always up to something like that and writing little playlets that made my brothers act in. I wrote one play about how my youngest brother, Alfie, who was one year old, one year old, was lost. And we, <laughs> we did lose him. He was only one, and there was a, a, a nail on the wall, and we hung him on that nail by, by the back of his shirt. And we did our play, and then we forgot about it. My mother came home, she says, where's the child? We couldn't remember. Where, we, where did you put him? Couldn't remember, but we found him hanging on the wall. I think he's been damaged by that ever since. But I would go on writing stuff like this. And Mr. O'Hallon used to take my compositions home and read them to his kids who went to private school. So I was always scribbling. But without more education, the best a boy like Frank McCourt could hope for was to become a messenger boy. Most of his classmates were headed for unemployment or the streets. The lucky few might make it to England, but some combination of fate and determination were on McCourt's side. When he completed grammar school, he got a job at the post office delivering telegrams. You had to take a kind of a test to get into the post office, uh, what, for what they call a, a, a temporary telegram boy. And then you could later go to school and get the permanent telegram boy job. And if you got that, then later on you could become a postman and maybe a clerk in the post office selling stamps and maybe a rise in the ranks and become an inspector. Well, I, w I went in at 14. I, I delivered telegrams for two years, knocked on every door in Limerick. The population of Limerick at that time was about 55,000. So I, I think I knocked on every door in Limerick, threw telegrams in, in the window, under the door. Everything was attacked by dogs and irate people who didn't get the telegram they wanted, they'd attack you, literally. Widows expecting... It's the, some, a lot of the people, a lot of the women in Limerick were widows from the British Army, and they, they, were, they used to get uh, pension payments. And if you brought a, a telegram from somebody else wishing them Merry Christmas, something like that, and it wasn't a telegram from the British Army, they'd attack you because they were so frustrated waiting for the money. And you'd learn to. They'd take one look at it and then look at you, and you knew the attack was coming. So you'd run down the path and hop on the bike. So I became a psychologist. I could see anger coming. But I did that for two years. And then I was encouraged to um, take the, tele the, uh, the, the exam for a permanent telegram boy. And the morning came, and my mother wanted me to do it I'd be, uh, so that I, I would have a bigger income and security and the pension, and I'd get a uniform. As a temporary, we didn't get any uniforms. We were out in all kinds of weather just with a jacket on, a sweater, pouring rain all that. We were always wet. I don't know why I didn't die of TB. The morning of the exam, I went down to the, the building, which is the, the, the headquarters of something called the LPYMA, Limerick Protestant Young Men's Association. 
And I went as far as the steps to go in. I was handing the man my uh, my form that would, and I drew back. And he said, "You coming in or what?" And I said, "No, no." And I went home. And my mother said, and I I hung around for a while before I went home. I wanted my mother to think I took the exam, but she found out that I hadn't taken it, and she was furious. But it was the right decision because three years later, then I just went to America. All the suffering and the drama and the humor sounds like obvious material for an epic tale. But Irv Drasnan, the journalist who did this interview in 1999, asked McCourt whether that ever occurred to him as he was living it. No. Oh, no. Far from it. We were all ashamed of this. You didn't go out into the world announcing that you came from some slum. You don't find kids from the ghettos and the slums bragging about what they came from. I remember reading James Baldwin talking about his mother fighting the cockroaches, trying to keep the kitchen clean, trying to keep things going up in Harlem. And I said, that's it. This this man understands because you read so little about poverty in, in American literature or any other literature. There was Dickens, I know, but Dickens, I became suspicious of him because he, he had all those happy endings. I wish Oliver Twist had died of TB or David Copperfield. That, that used to piss me off when they're all, all, they all found out they were related to somebody in the royal family or some damn thing. So I, when I came across Baldwin and George Orwell's books on Down and Out in, in Paris and London and another one called The Road to Wigan Pier, they had, he knew, he knew the details, the stink of poverty. So uh, when I was growing up, I wasn't particularly proud of it. None of us, when we finally left, even around Limerick, if we wandered out of our lane, we went into other areas of more prosperous areas of Limerick. We didn't want to look like we came from a lane, but you could spot us a mile away, the urchins from the lanes. We had that look. You, you see kids roaming the big cities in New York, in, in, in America, the inner cities, as I say. You see bands of kids, and you know. You know where they came from. You can spot them. They're roaming around. And, and you, look, you look at some of them. They don't want to be there. They, don't want, they want to be someplace else. They want to be part of what they're walking through, the fine streets and the broad avenues. And that's the way I felt. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be detected as a slump kid. But there was no choice. We had no clothes. We didn't have clothes. Right? So when I came to New York, I tried to pass myself off as middle class. I even tried to affect an American accent. Didn't work. I tried some days. Now, even nowadays, but my wife falls on the floor laughing at my attempt at an American accent. So we all we all wanted to sound like James Cagney, but we didn't want to tell anybody what we came from because we were ashamed of it. And the shame, you know, the, the concurrent with shame is anger. And my mother, when we joke around about this in New York, my uh, my brothers and I, my mother would say, "Will you stop talking about that? That's the past." But eventually, we got over the shame and we started talking about it. And I, it, it took me a long time. Then I started writing about it in my notebooks. And that led to Angela's Ashes a long time later on. Frank McCourt was just 19 when he came by himself to America, full of anger at his father, at the church, at his lack of education. And his self-esteem, he said, was at rock bottom. So I didn't know what to do with myself. 
I didn't know how to find the door into America. Here I was, uh, I didn't know anybody. Uh, so I was mostly alone and uh, floundering. And then I had to deal with something else that, that, that people rarely talk about. It's an ethnic story in a way, but uh, I had the English language. Other people come from Italy and Czechoslovakia and places like that, and they have to grapple with America, and they have to grapple with trying to get the, uh, master the English language as well. But at least I had a language, so that made it fairly, that made it more convenient for me. But the minute I opened my mouth and they'd say, oh, you're Irish. They said, what you should do now is join the cops. And I didn't want to join the cops. <sighs> Suddenly I'm labeled. I wasn't a human being. In Ireland, I was just a, a low-class type. But here I'm a low-class Irish type, an Irish low-class type. So I didn't know. I had not, I, Somehow I had to deal with that. Oh, you're Irish. And at that time, that was 1949, there was still some kind of a lingering residue of prejudice against the Irish. People used to tell me, all the people that up and down New England and in New York, there would be signs saying no Irish need apply. And even the Irish Americans would, would listen to me and they, they patronized me. I was a bit simple as if I had just come off a farm. And I knew better than that. I knew I was better than that. They, people who, Irish Americans who were running elevators and, and, and working as porters, they were looking down at me. And I knew then that I was, again, at the bottom of the heap. And uh, I, I, was, I was confused most of the time. I never felt, I never, I never had anything but the dream of getting out of this, that I wanted to be something else, and, but I didn't know what, there was no clear-cut dream. I thought I'd like to have a job, a decent job in an office. I'd like to be in an office, sitting behind the desk, pushing papers around, making little decisions about pushing papers, get out at five o'clock, meet this gorgeous girl, and we'd probably get married and have two and a half kids and live out in Long Island or someplace like that. And I'd go to Mass every Sunday morning. I'd be nice and warm and clean, and I'd be accepted, and I'd lose my Irish accent, and I'd sound like James Cagney. So what did he do instead? I read a lot. I discovered the 42nd Street Library. That's what I did. I read and read and read uh, voraciously and, 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 and widely. Then... I was liberated from this menial job I had in a hotel. I was the man with the dustpan and the broom in the lobby. I was liberated by the Chinese who attacked Korea and America drafted me. So that, that's, I, I don't know what I would have done if the Chinese hadn't attacked Korea. I'm a victim of history in Ireland and I'm a beneficiary of history in America. <laughs> the GI Bill is what Frank McCord is talking about. During the Korean War, he was lucky to avoid the battlefield. Instead, he was sent to Germany to train dogs and type reports. After the war, the GI Bill gave him the chance to finally have the education he'd craved. By the mid-1960s, he had a bachelor's degree and a master's. It was while he was in a class at NYU that he finally got a glimpse of how to go about becoming a writer. We were asked to write about a single thing an object in our childhood. And the object that meant most to me, or that, that was so significant, was the bed I slept in with my brothers, all four of us. This half acre of a bed with a, with, with a disaster of a mattress, which collapsed in the middle. Everybody peed in the bed, so the spring was gone. And we tried to keep it together with bits of string, but after a while, 
the acid from our bodies rot at the string. We'd get into bed, we roll into the middle, the four of us, and fight, get on my way. Now, meanwhile, the fleas were feasting on us. And if you want, if you had to, if you had to go to the John, you went to a bucket and so on, came back. And we were up, we'd light a candle to get at them, and we'd hold the candle, and we'd, we'd go at, at, slapping at each other's legs and bodies, killing the fleas. That was the probably the most concrete image I brought away from my childhood, and I wrote about that. And the professor said, give me an A+. Plus. I said, Jesus, this is very strange. And then he says, please read this to the class. And I said, no. Would you, no, would you please read I said, no, I'd be ashamed. And he read it. He said, do you mind if I read it? So he read it to the class. And I think they sensed that I was the one who wrote it. And good-looking girls started looking at me in an interested way. I thought they'd be, I thought they'd be disgusted. But uh, I found myself being stopped leaving the class. I thought, is that how you grew up? And there were, they seemed, I seemed suddenly became a kind of an exotic in the class. So that was, that was a turning point. One little thing can change the course of your life or can change your emotional landscape. Mind you, it would still be another 30 years before McCourt would write his first book, Angela's Ashes. In the interim, he dedicated himself to teaching in the public high schools of New York, a job and a life he was passionate about. And maybe that's not surprising, given the impact that Mr. O'Halloran and the NYU professor had on his life. But teaching was no picnic, especially when he showed up for his first job at McKee Vocational High School in Staten Island. And, and I was thrown into this, as I told you before, I had no high school education myself. I had never been in a high school, so I had to, uh, I was, th- nobody told me what to do. They just threw me into the, into the classroom. And here I was in front of these American teenagers who were a species from another world for me. Tough kids who were not a bit interested in what I had to say. So I had to hook them. I went into the classroom as a, 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 my only models were Irish schoolmasters. And I thought I'd go in there and I'd roar at the kids in in McKee Vocational High School the way the masters roared at us. Didn't work. Yo, teach, why are you talking like that? And they were talking to me. I'm the schoolmaster. Yo, teach. And I I had to stop this. I had to find some other way of, of... of dealing with the kids, of running the classes. And I found eventually the only way to deal with them was to be honest and not to take it personally when the kids would, would erupt. And, you know, you know, when you have uh, uh, 150 or 170 high school kids every day, there will be eruptions and they get angry and they direct it at the teacher, but it's not at the teacher. It's something they, they brought from home. You know, you can get all psychological about this, but I learned not to take it personally. I, not to be not not to be quite impassable over it, but to understand what was happening in the classroom. That was the beginning of my education. I learned to drop the mask. And I became a, really I became a human being in front of those classes because I wasn't. I was a kind of a I was a kind of a, a, a stick of dynamite when I came to New York and when I started all this teaching. It took me a long time to to come to grips with myself. Never mind the kids.
before that, I had been, I'd worked in warehouses, I had worked on the docks, I'd done all kinds of physical work, but I was never so exhausted as I was after a day at McKee High School. I used to go home and throw myself on the floor without benefit of pillow or anything, just throw myself on the floor and lie there for two hours to rec physically and emotionally recover and dread it going in the next day. So, but there was something again that happened again. One morning, I was taking the train from Brooklyn into Manhattan, where I got the ferry to go up to Staten Island. And I was getting off the train at Whitehall Street, stepping off the train and onto the platform. And this thought came into my head. You could decide today to be happy. <laughs> you could just make a decision instead of going in fear and trembling into the classroom. Now, it's easy to say that. And it doesn't always work. But I, I realized that I was resisting some kind of gloom gravity that most of us, uh, most of the time, we look on the dark side. And, but you have to work at lifting yourself up. And I tried it that day. It was the beginning of that kind of practice. So I tried. Then I realized if you don't enjoy yourself in the classroom, get out. It would have been easier for me to do what my three brothers did, go into the bar business go up there and meet glamorous men and beautiful women on the east side and stay out all night drinking and have brunch with some long-legged creature from, from Boston. No, and I, I thought of that. But then I thought of the kids in the classroom. And uh, that, there was something more appealing about that. And besides, I wanted to get through. I wanted to get through to them. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted things to click. And, and sometimes in a, there's something that happens in a classroom that I know actors experience and artists in general. There's some time when you make a breakthrough and there's some light goes on. One, one day in, in, in McKee, I made a breakthrough of some kind. And for me, there was a kind of a white blazing light in the room. I said, Jesus, this is absolutely orgasmic in an intellectual and emotional sense. And I knew then that what I did was to tell, the, we were dealing with a poem, uh, and it was called, the poem was called My Papa's Waltz. And, you know, you're always told, look for the deeper meaning with the kids, and then there would be a test. But I said to the kids, let's get inside the poem. What's going on in here? And that was a huge, there was an explosion for me at that moment, because we were doing it together. I wasn't a teacher anymore. I know everything, and you're just out there. I'll tell you what you need to know. You tell me what's happening. Tell me what's going on in here. I think that colored my whole teaching career. Because as Dylan Thomas said, a job is death without dignity. And I didn't, want to, I didn't want that kind of life. I had to go into the classroom and enjoy myself. And I'd say to the kids every September, by the end of this term, there's one person in this class who will have learned something, and that would be me. And I have to enjoy myself. I told them, I have to enjoy myself here. I have to do it. You'll be graduating and I'll still be here. And I'm not going to wither on the vine. I'm not going to be old Mr. Chips. <laughs> I'm going to swing. <laughs> Frank McCourt went on from McKee to two other schools and then spent his last 18 years teaching at Stuyvesant, one of the most competitive high schools in Manhattan. In the end, whether he was teaching rich kids or poor, McCourt's goal was always to help the kids think for themselves and know their worth. And now I'm going to digress a bit. 
That's Frank McCourt speaking to students at another Academy of Achievement event, almost a decade after the interview you've been hearing. I I read an essay a few years ago by Jonathan Swift on digression. You should all read it because in this country, there's too much sticking to the point. (laughs) And and that's the difference between the Irish and the English. And this is another digression. (laughs) That an Englishman in love will say, darling, I love you. Will you marry me? Simple. The Irishman, however, says, Mary, how would you like to be buried with my people? (laughs) That's the difference. So I've, uh, and that was one of the complaints I had from my students when I was teaching. I I became a devotee of digression. And they'd say, and because a lot of the kids in, in the last school I taught at Stuyvesant High School, which was the jewel in the crown of New York City high schools, science and mathematics, and you know how that is. You have to stick to the subject. You stick to the procedure, the, the elegant solution. They, these kids used to ask me, Mr. McCord, that's, five minutes ago you were talking about something else. And I would say, well, I'm testing your attention, your attention span. But in, in my... In my teaching days, I found it difficult not to digress. I know there was a curriculum or a syllabus or a course of study. We were given it every term, freshman year, first term, freshman year, second term, all the way up to the end of, of, of the uh, senior year. And I tried it. I was a young teacher. I, I didn't succeed. I didn't have, I suppose, I didn't have the required passion for dangling participles, but I'm digressing. <laughs> back, to, back to what I learned. In, in, uh, and this is a huge digression, this up in space digression. This is uh, October the 4th, 1958, I think it was. October the 4th being the feast day of my favorite saint, Francis of Assisi. That requires another digression, but I'm going to come back to where I was. So uh, October 4th that year, there was a strange sound heard in space, this beep, 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 and they're down in Washington and Houston and Cape Canaveral, and said, what the hell is this? And so, Jesus, it's a little Russian golden ball going around in space. It's called Sputnik, beep, beep. The beep was in Russian, but, but they, <laughs> beep, and it's going, it's going through space, and there was hell to pay in Washington. Why, how do these goddamn Russians have a little golden ball in space before we do? And somebody says, so who, who lost his job? Well, their German scientists are better than our German scientists. So that, <laughs> that, that was, yeah. we, we had a guy down there, but he, he was too slow, and, but he was highly rewarded. He was an ex-Nazi and so on. But their little golden beep is up there. So because of that golden beep, there's hell to pay in Washington, the Department of Education, and, and Eisenhower's in office, and he, he, he gave up a whole afternoon of golf to come back and listen to the beep, 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 and, and, and everybody said, what are, we going to, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And of course, some, somebody had to be blamed, there had to be a scapegoat, and of course, when in doubt, and you're looking for a scapegoat, the schools. The teachers, particularly. The teachers, this was said, you go back and look at the newspapers. The teachers are not doing their job. Our schools are falling apart. And then a big report had come out 
under the Eisenhower era about the terrible state of our public schools and so on. A nation at risk, it was called. And oh, everybody, they're all scratching their heads. And, and there was hell to pay in, in Washington, and uh, uh, they, they blamed the school. But so what are we going to do? So suddenly, I teach, I just started teaching in high school, and there was a memo came around, and it said, do you need anything? I used to have to beg for a stick of chalk. But now the government decided, well, maybe we ought to give them supplies in the schools. Maybe we ought to encourage everybody. Maybe we ought to reduce class sizes, etc. Not raise teachers' salaries. Not never, 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 never. Give them more composition paper. Give them more chalkboard erasers and so on. So... Uh, I started, get, I started getting uh, supplies. I hardly knew what to, do, what to do with all the composition paper. I had so much chalk I was writing on the walls in addition to the... <laughs> I was writing everywhere. And then, and then of, course, of course, that dried up. Uh, what goes on in the classroom is still a, a, a secret because most people don't understand or they think that, they think that all you do is you get up in front of a class and talk. English teacher talks about Shakespeare, uh, math teacher talks about algebra and calculus and so on, and you, and you lecture the way they do in the movies. It's not like that at all. I used to think you'd get in there and, and you'd start teaching. No, you don't start teaching. You separate fight, uh, you, you answer requests for the past. They're hardly in their seats five minutes. You've got to have the PS. All of this stuff is going. There's something called the subject matter. English. Oh, uh, we should get around to that sometime. But the kids are geniuses. This is what people forget about them. They've been in school for 9, 10, 11 years, and they are masters of teacher psychology. They can tell by the way you walk into the room what you're like. Every teacher has a desk. Some teachers hide behind the desk so, uh, and, or lean on the desk or sit behind the desk. That's not good. That shows you're fearful. You have to stand up, come out from behind the desk, and go full frontal. Uh, <laughs> let, them, let, them, let them see you. So, and they can tell about your demeanor, your posture, the tone of your voice, what, what kind of person or what kind of teacher you're going to be. And they decide then, should they let you live or will they kill you? Uh, <laughs> So all of, this, uh, all of this was going on in the classroom. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm surviving in these various schools. And maybe after 15 years of my 30 years in the classroom, I'm beginning to develop what they call a style of my own. Everybody does it. All people in the media have to develop their own style. Politicians do it. And I, I didn't really realize that. I thought I'd imitate other teachers. You can't because you're false yourself. So, I figured out my, uh, my own way of dealing with, um, with the classes. Well, what, there was digression. I admit there was digression. But the other valuable part of it was the story. They wanted to know about me because they, they're very smart kids. They detected I had an accent of some kind, and they, want, they wanted to know what it was, and I told them it was Irish. And, and what, they're doing, they're, what they're doing is getting me away from the subject. Because I'm, I'm about to launch into this brilliant pejoration on, on the indirect object. And they want, to get me, they want to get me away from that. So they ask me questions about my life, about Ireland. And, so, and I know what they're doing. And I, but I don't mind. 
because I don't mind telling little stories about Ireland. And this, this is how I survived all the years uh, in, in the four different high schools, talking about my past. I didn't want to talk about my past. My past was sordid and miserable, the miserable Irish Catholic childhood. And I, I, I thought it was worthless, but they seemed to be interested somewhat. They were somewhat interested. So, so I told my stories, and uh, I, I left. Then at, towards the end of my teaching career, uh, they told me that I should go and write a book. And I do what I'm told, so I wrote a book. Frank McCourt actually wrote three books. The other two, Tiz and Teacher Man, were memoirs that picked up where his first left off, telling his experiences as an immigrant in New York and in the classroom, both as engaging, insightful, and funny as Angela's Ashes. Which brings me back to the interview and to the subject of humor. Journalist Irv Drasnan wanted to know how Frank McCourt squared all the struggle in his life with that glorious wit. If you talk to anybody who's come out of adverse circumstances, they'll tell you that humor keeps you going. That's the way it was in, this, in the lanes and the slums of Limerick, that uh, as, as poor as people were, they sang, they told their stories, and they laughed. They laughed over the neighbors. Because Limerick, Ireland, has been called an open-air lunatic asylum, and people wandered the streets of Limerick who were, you know, a bit daft. They should have, in, in America, they'd be locked up in a minute. But we, we saw them, and then we would imitate the teachers. We'd come home from school imitating the schoolmasters. We'd imitate policemen, bureaucrats giving out the welfare down at the dispensary. We imitated and made fun of everybody, and even ourselves. We'd tease each other, so, and literally fall on the ground laughing. We were, I think, there was this excitement and this sense of joy in life. In with, with our low expectations. If you don't have it, if you don't have that, 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 that particular chemical, you're dead. The other ingredient key to Frank McCourt's survival was purpose, finding his sense of purpose, even though it took most of a lifetime to figure out what it was and what it had been. The day I retired from teaching, again, was one of the most satisfying days of my life. It was sad, but when I, the day I retired, I went home and I was by myself. I was having a glass of wine. I was thinking about the lunch the teachers gave me that day, the retirement lunch. And I was able to look back on that life, that 30 years in the classroom, and say I, I was able to tell, uh, uh, congratulate myself. I'm glad I did that. That was good. I felt useful. And that I was dealing with kids, and I hoped that I had been of some use, of some help. You never know. That and publishing the book. What more can a man ask for? My dream has been fulfilled, to have come to this country, to have taught. And for me, it's, it's beyond the American dream. I think if there's another place that's even better than America, maybe heaven or something. I've gone beyond it. I know, I found out eventually why I was put on this earth. I was put on this earth to write. And as, as uh, Thomas Carlyle said, happy is the man who has found his work. So I'm happy. Writer and teacher Frank McCourt speaking to the Academy of Achievement in 1999 and 2008. He died in 2009 at the age of 78. This is what it takes. In fact, it's the 50th episode of What It Takes. So a special thank you today for listening. If you've just discovered our podcast, go back and peruse the list of incredible people we've featured. Treasures all. I'm Alice Winkler.
What It Takes is generously funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. <laughs>